Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and the podcast's unchallenged pronunciation guru, Thea Lenardutzi. Thea, last week, it is fair to say, I, I have genuinely been thinking of this more than once. You accuse me of trying to be Blackadder to your Baldrick. I love Blackadder, but I would never wish to make anyone a Baldrick. And um, I'm going to resist the temptation to make any form of witless or... Ref- reference to gout. Gout. <laughs> um, the pronunciation guru thing is just a fact. That's just your job. I don't think that's. I don't think there's anything improper about referring to that. But it doesn't say it on my staff card. It does it not? Should. It should. It Pronunciation. Should, yeah. I could good, kind of freelance within the building. I think being a guru of anything is a, is a great thing. <laughs> so I'm yeah, We're going to move on. Before we get to the show, actually, I want to tell you how to get cheap subscriptions to the TLS. If you Google TLS subscriptions, click and type. Pod one, that's pod one in the offer code tab. You can get six issues for just six pounds. So Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the code and do that. Coming up on the show, we have a major piece by the wonderful novelist Ema McBride on the subject of bad sex writing and why it is not simply something squirmingly to laugh at. She'll be joining Thea and me to discuss that. Diana Dark has reviewed two books by women who have fled the traumas of the Middle East to seek solace in Europe. They are remarkable tales of survival well worthy of all our consideration. And finally, Jenny Hendricks will join us to articulate the phenomenon of imaginative cartography, which is the artful cousin of that, dare I say, slightly tiresome genre of psychogeography. She'll be on the line from New York. Writing about sex, it is fair to say, can often be more fraught, more precarious than actually having it. The pitfalls are many, not least that of outright snorting amusement at attempts to describe an act that is open both to ridicule and to a sort of Laurentian over-seriousness. We had a piece on our website by Jonathan Gibbs last month that sought to articulate the case for good sex writing. In it, he memorably objected to a description of a man coming like a drinking horse on the grounds that it broke his law of the reversible simile. He said, if you can describe something as being like something else, then that comparison should work equally well in reverse. I'm yet to see a horse drink like a man coming, and I hope I never will. 
So laughing about this stuff is very right and proper. But here's the thing. Sexual expression is also closely connected to sexual politics, that ongoing, often dispiriting contest to ensure equality and fairness in how we talk about and consider gender and sex. How women are portrayed sexually in literature is important in the same way it is important how they are pictured and described in other forms of discourse too. Ian McBride, who it must be said writes beautifully and frankly about sex in her own novels, has reviewed a collection called Desire, edited by Mariella Frostrup, subtitled A Hundred of Literature's Sexiest Stories. It has to be said that many of these stories have left Ema cold, or worse, angry. She divided them into three categories, the good, the harmless and the horrible. She joins Thea and me now to discuss them. Ema, you opened the review with the remark of a woman who said, I really like reading books about sex. Before we discuss this book, why do you think that's true? And is that a, a common thing? Well, I mean, for me, it was a surprise when she, she said it to me. And I realised it was because I don't think I'd ever heard anyone you know, speak about it. So, so frankly, before, it's usually something that's quite covert. It, it was something that I felt, you know, writing a lot as I do about sex myself was something I wanted to explore a bit more. Why we talk about it, why we write about it. Because there's a distinction that you don't really get into too much because you don't think it's of that much interest between what's erotic and what's pornography. But do you think that it's, it's covert in the sense that we're a bit embarrassed to read a book that majors on sex or a book that is designed, I suppose, to, to, to cause arousal in some way? Is that, is that kind of an embarrassing thing? There's a generational thing there. Certainly, you know, I'm I'm 40, and and I was certainly brought up in a generation where people would not sit and read a book like, a, you know, a pornographic novel like Fifty Shades, on the tube, and that has become something that's quite open now. You know, I think it's concerning that that is the kind of sex people feel comfortable with with identifying themselves with in public. Well, the Fifty Shades is the, the kind of S and M stuff. Yeah. Well, you know. Violent, violent books about violent fantasy. It's interesting that uh, that you, I, I don't know if this is this is interesting or not. But if I saw a man reading a pornographic book on the tube, I'd think it was creepier than if I saw a woman reading a pornographic book on the tube. Is that fair? Do you think? I think that is fair. Um, but I equally think seeing a woman reading Fifty Shades <laughs> on the tube is concerning, and it's something that has kind of fascination with female submissive fantasies have has sort of sneaked in under the radar and become almost completely normalized. I think also your your discomfort stick is probably to do I mean it's a clear it shows how uh, how wrapped up the politics of power are with with this question of force and strength and, and things like that. Yeah. Possibly. Anay Nin, who who the editors name Chekima she wrote that she had a feeling when she was composing this collection back in the 40s with other writers like uh, Henry Miller, she wrote that she had a feeling that Pandora's box contained the mysteries of women's sexuality, so different from a man's, and for which man's language was so inadequate. And the language of sex had yet to be invented, she thought. But she was convinced that the languages of, of male and female sexu sexuality were, were distinct, which I find quite interesting. I mean, would you tend to agree with her? And, and does that work its way into this collection at all? I think she is. She is right. And I think, you know, as a writer myself writing about sex, one of the, the rules I set myself early on was that I wasn't allowed to use any of the traditional vocabulary, which seems very informed by the sex writing of, of male writers past rather than, than um, female writers. So I, I think she's absolutely right about that. It's also something that hasn't progressed 
very much, I think, over the years. And and that's a shame, I think, women are are trapped into writing about sex in particular ways that are not necessarily always close to their own experience. As I said, you split this book into sort of the good, the harmless and the horrible. The horrible is in some ways more important. But just to say, um, reading this, what makes good sex writing? What, what examples do you draw on? What do you think when you read it? Is it the freshness of the vocabulary and unwillingness to tread down the, the cliché of, of standard sex descriptions? Yeah, I think there, it's, it's about an approach to language, certainly, but also about um, a disregard for traditional roles or clichés. I mean, I think, for instance, Angela Carter's The Company of Wolves is a story about a woman finding sexuality and finding it in, in a dangerous place rather than a woman being destroyed by sexuality, by dangerous people. And there are so many other stories in this book that are about women being torn apart. Well, let's, let's, um, I mean, that seems to be the critical bit that you, you get to, that this is a book which, although written, many of the contributions are written by women, it's edited by a woman in, in, in the form of Mariella Frostrup, and yet a large proportion of the stories find their sexual expression in violence towards women, sometimes quite brutal violence towards women. And it made you angry, I think it's fair to say. I, I got that from the, uh, from the book, from the piece. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is something that's very alive in our culture at the moment. This, you know, complete focus on on female submission fantasies, and I and I sort of air quote fantasies because it seems to be something that's just endlessly thrust down our throat. And I'm I'm concerned that younger women feel that this is in some way normal rather than particular to a certain genre. Um, and and my problem with this book was that there were so many stories about either that were about female submission that weren't necessarily about violence, but as though most straight women, and the book is mostly about straight women, enjoy being sexually dominated. And this is, you know, this is not really questioned in any way. And then the much more concerning stories are the stories that are about, you know, these horrendous acts of violence that are actually quite hard to read, being portrayed as sexy. I mean, I object to these stories being in a collection called 100 Sexiest Stories. Even if John Berger hadn't died recently, I'd be tempted to draw a connection between the, the, the collection and his distinction between naked, being naked and being a nude in which mm. it, to be naked is to, to get closer to knowing oneself and being oneself and being, you know, trying to discover some truth about oneself, which is what good yeah. sex writing does. And when you're in, if you're a nude, in which case you're performing, you're being consumed by someone else, uh, generally a, a male gaze in, in Berger's analogy. Um, it seems like something very, very similar is going on. So it's just the extent to which women have internalised the kind of the heteronormative fantasy as you put it in inverted commas well you know i think this is this is one of the big differences between between good sex writing and and the horrible sex writing is that good sex writing places sexuality within the context within a human context and this kind of writing separates it out completely and turns the woman into into an object into a vacuum and she's she's basically there to receive whatever is inflicted on her or or inside her and and it, and it doesn't actually make any human connection to to what happens around all of those events, why that woman is in this situation, what happens to her afterwards, as though, you know, sort of terrible violence can be inflicted upon the body of a woman and 
then the next day she goes to the office as normal and everything's okay. Or is um, you, is you because quite... in life, that isn't seen at all right. Why is that all right in fiction? Well, you, you quote, there's a woman who's, who's punched in the vagina in one of these stories, and then the story concludes with her saying, I love you, babe. Yeah. At, at the end is the example that you give. What about this notion, though, of, of freedom of expression, that these are, and this is, I think, from reading your review, Mariella Frostrup's position, that these are... are fantasies, these are acts of free expression, largely by women, it's edited by a woman and they are entitled to write about violent sexual fantasies if they choose. Is there a free speech issue here? Are you you're saying this stuff should be published but it shouldn't necessarily be published in a mainstream book that proclaims this as literature's sexiest stories? Yeah, I mean my argument isn't with the writers writing this material. I might find it um, unpalatable myself but I don't have an objection to, to this being written or to it being published. I have a problem with it being collected all together in this anthology and called 100 Sexiest Stories. And it, it being so heavily weighted towards this kind of Sadian writing, sexual writing, rather than any other kind. You know, there are many other types of, you know, I mean, for instance, as a teenager, I remember reading, running down to the, the library in Castlebar and reading My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday, yeah. which was filled with, with female fantasies of all kinds. And when I agreed to review this book, I was sort of expecting something along those lines, but in terms of fiction. And instead, you know, I was just presented with these endless stories of female submission. Who's reading this, Amy? Because that, that's the one question that I, I kind of struggle with by the end of this review, because this is in some ways kind of posh, Literature. It's a it's a it's a relatively respectable imprint. It's it's done in a relatively glossy way. Is this stories for people to masturbate to, but feel like they're clever at the same time? Is it stories for people to just place on their coffee table and show that they're they're pretty broad-minded? Uh, is it aimed at men who want to get off on 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 descriptions of women? Are women going to read this? I, I can't quite imagine who the ideal audience of this book is. Well, you know, I think it's the remit of the book is completely fudged. It's, there are lots of stories that are really just, you know, wanking stories. And they're, they're sort of perfectly fine for, for serving that purpose, I suppose, but they don't have any literary merit. And then there are, you know, stories that are really about sexuality as well as about sex. And those are the, kind of the interesting ones and often quite, quite beautiful. And, and stories collected from, or, or, you know, novels and things of historical relevance. And then all of these this kind of other stuff which is presumably aimed at fans of Fifty Shades and all those kind of S&M porn novels. So I don't, I'm, I don't really know. It's, it's sort of enormous and flowery. I can't imagine who, who was supposed to read it. I was equally intrigued and I, I, sort of, I, found my, I went onto Amazon because I wanted to see, you know, the, the reader reviews and want to see what they were like. And yes, you're absolutely yeah. true that, I mean, all of the comments, uh, it's absolutely true what you said, Ema, they're all... They're all comments left by women, and they're all four or five stars out of five. Can I, I can read you a couple yeah, of on. them. These were well, just oh. extracts from them. Well-written and tasty. A really enjoyable collection. Such fun. Like, thing, things like that. Actually, these two, these two are my favourite. Bought this as a Christmas present for my husband, and he really loves it. Beautifully written. And then, this is the best. Unusual book. Well-priced and delivered on time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it has that in its favourite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Surprised, and I am not surprised. Are we inured to this? I mean, is this, is in some ways, that one of the pieces they make in the tradition, oh, we have no power to, to, to be shocked anymore. But the quotes that you put in the, the, the review, 
I was slightly shocked by in mm. moments, certainly. I don't mind admitting. And your point, I think, at the end, you say you object to the future this book presents you with, your daughter with, everyone's daughters with, because effectively we're so inured to a certain type of worldview about men and women and women's submissiveness that maybe we're not shocked by it. And if Thea's reviews are indicative, then women have read this and gone lovely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. I think it is quite a frightening phenomenon because I don't think that people are inured, either men or women. Um, and I think the assumption that we are, the assumption that women will be, just because some women will be, um, is quite dangerous. And I think that's why it was important to write you know, to write about it the way I did, and as angrily as I did, because I think there are a lot of women who are really tired of being told that this is what women like and this is what women want, because it's not what I want. Mm. And I know lots of women, and they don't want it either, and they object to living in a society where this is considered normal, where this is something that's being peddled for people to, you know, give their husbands for Christmas, I mm. suppose. Well, I mean, I find I find some comfort in the thought that the society that called for and produced this book is also the, it's the same society that produced a writer who can write so uh, concisely and insightfully against it. And, you know, modestly that, that there's publication that publishes it as well. I think I think we have to take some comfort in that because otherwise it's, it's a thoroughly dispiriting exercise. Oh, I think it's all a dispiriting exercise. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as long as we're not getting too tired to fight the fight, I think. Yeah. And you said at the end, just to, just to finish with you, I just wish books about sex that would let me enjoy them weren't so hard to find. And that's probably true, isn't it? I mean, you could probably count the great books about sex on, on the fingers of, of one or, or two hands. I mean, it's... And we had a review about three months ago, or four months ago, maybe, about Henry Miller. Mm. where, where uh, Jim Campbell uh, of our parish reviewed, reappraised him and said, I couldn't believe how sort of cliched and sexist he was. And I remember reading Henry Miller at 18 and being really excited by it because it was kind of transgressive. It was, it was dark, but it was all, I felt at the time it was also sort of challenging. And yet I've picked up a copy of um, uh, one of the books again recently because I've got a lot of them, and... It isn't. It's kind of trite, it's kind of embarrassing, and it's kind of an, a dirty old man writing about his fantasies. It's often in literature, I find, particularly modern literature, it's middle-aged men. Philip Roth did this, actually, in his last novel, you know, Philip Roth writing about lesbian sex, lesbian threesomes. And it's so often you get middle-aged men sort of recapturing their fantasies in prose. Do you think that's fair in the sense of how, how fiction deals with this? It's often that's the dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's really depressing that we have not come much further uh, down the road with regard to sex writing than that. But, you know, looking at this book and, and looking at the, the kind of the, the historical writing they've included in it, there's, there's not much after, after the 50s, really, that where anything interesting happened. And Henry Miller you know, was important in his time because he, he broke the rules and he opened up writing about sex. But yeah, it's old-fashioned, misogynist, it's of its time and it should be relegated to its time. But sadly, there's not much that's come along to take its place. I think that's And that's a shame. That is a shame. Ema, it's, it's such a great piece uh, and I really hope people uh, read it because uh, like at the end, I think you, you make a, a very, very strong case about why this is more troubling than just a naff book pushed out under the guise of sort of sexy literature I think it is more important than that so thank you so much for doing and thank you for joining us now thank you yeah, I, I, the thing striking reading this talking to Ema just then is that there was some good writing you talked about a nice nin and 
Henry Miller, maybe Lawrence, mm. maybe. Although I find mm. Lawrence silly, you you like Lawrence more <laughs> than I do. Um, it doesn't feel that it's been great literature written recently and actually there should be a time when we are becoming more progressive about sex where we are more open about it we are talking more freely about it you know even fact a piece like this appearing in a paper like the tls is, is kind of indicative mm. of that potentially why are we not getting better quality writing well i don't know i mean i think interestingly when i when i try to think about books that i've read that have you know good sex in them in inverted commas i usually find myself thinking about books that have have gay or lesbian sex in them, like The Swimming Pool Library or The Line of Beauty. Or I think a great example, actually, is uh, Violette Le Duc's book uh, called Thérèse and Isabel. And that was, it was censored when it was written, I think, in the 1950s, and it wasn't published in, until 2001 or something like that. And, uh, and that's about two schoolgirls. And the reason that I think that my mind goes to those is because they're surprising to me. Yeah. Because perhaps because they're not normative experiences they're not they're not experiences that I can relate to I'm less likely to find cliche and sentimentality and also because the writers know that they're writing for people who for whom mostly this will be a foreign experience the language is just so much more created and so when you think about Le Duc the poetry of that is astound- is astounding yeah uh, and, and and the imagery is is just pure creation and it'd be interesting if that was that approach were to be taken to something more familiar and more overworked which is kind of heterosexual sex the quote that uh Ema, so we might have to leave it here says um how many of the stories have these cliches tiny women being scared or awed but eventually driven to unendurable ecstasies by big hairy dominant males in combination with the thrillless tedium of wading through endless descriptions of heaving bosoms damp sexes hard nipples and aching erections are the literary equivalent of a cold shower and i kind of think we've ended up this book which doesn't need to exist and yet it sort of manifested itself as a not a hundred of literature's sexiest stories but just sort of a series of cliches mm. captured between hard covers mm. and that's kind of a shame yeah sort of iterations on stockholm syndrome yeah. yeah the same thing over and over again we sh- when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Shall move on? Uh, we turn to the Middle East and the chance to hear from an expert in the area. Diana Dark has reviewed two books that tell the stories of women who have fled from war-torn Syria and Iraq in search of a new life in Europe. The first, The Girl Who Be Isis, is by Farida Kalaf in conjunction with the German journalist Andrea Hoffman. Farida lived in the Yazidi village of Kocho, south of Sinjar in the Nineveh Plains. In Kocho, people speak Kurdish, not Arabic, but retain friendly relations with Muslims. Indeed, each Yazidi male child has a Muslim godfather present at his circumstances. But that detente was shattered with the arrival of ISIS in the village, who massacred 80 men and enslaved the women. Thousands of women, actually. By enslaved, this means that Farida was sold at a slave market to a variety of owners for the purposes of rape. ISIS fighters combined their religious fervour with their bestial desires, praying before they forced themselves on girls, celebrating their rape as a form of worship, as one quote goes. In the second book, Nujin, Nujin Mustafa tells her story with the help of journalist Christina Lam. Nujin has cerebral palsy, but her enforced physical immobility contrasted with her mental acuity and language skills. Her family moved from Kobane eventually to Aleppo, where Assad's goons forced them to flee to Mambij until the arrival of ISIS compelled them to move again. Nujin then began a journey to Europe in her wheelchair. Uh, Diana joins Theo and me to discuss these books and the state of Syria more generally. Um, Diana, were you shocked by Farida's story of, of the rape and... Um, the slavery, or is this so sadly commonplace to you now that it, it wasn't any more shocking than the other stories you've heard on the subject? I'm afraid it's the latter, that although it is, of course, deeply shocking, it has become now so routine that this is the danger, actually, that because stories like this have become so routine that we become slightly inured to it. And, and that's almost worse than anything, that this level of sort of medieval bestiality, which is masquerading as Islam, is something that we're expected to except as, well, you know, I mean, the stories like this, they're just sort of rolling off our backs now, as if this is just ordinary. And and does that go for the the story of Nujin as well? I mean, it it seems to me at one level, this extraordinary vision of her through presumably very difficult terrain, hugely difficult circumstances, her family fleeing to Europe with her in a wheelchair, that, that feels like an extraordinary act, or is that again, maybe just one of the many extraordinary acts that take place in the life of refugees coming from from that area? Again, I I think it is just one extraordinary act. The thing that struck me most about Najin's story, and which is a wonderful story about, you know, one of the strengths of that part of the world, is is the sheer family cohesion. The way that although she is, you know, an invalid, she's a burden, if you like, onto her family, but she is never made to feel that. She, She can't go anywhere except with their help. Um, and yet she is this remarkably cheerful person, but she's totally supported by her family. There is never any sense of, oh, God, you know, what a nuisance you are or anything like that. In, in fact, there's this wonderful constant banter with her. And, of course, the wonderful thing about her story is that she turns out to be the heroine because she's taught herself English by watching all these soaps on television. And then she is the sort of saviour when they arrive in Europe because she's the only one who can actually communicate with anybody. And what are her prospects in that of her family? I mean, it's, probably, it's an interesting question for both of the, the two, two women. I mean, uh, Nujin has a brother in the UK and there's a very sort of oddly poignant line where you say a fully trained dentist now making pizzas in Sheffield. Um, where you know people hugely qualified come to this country and, and, and often take jobs that aren't 
to sort of um, connected to their qualification. But what are their prospects and, and are they optimistic? Is this the, the, the both books end optimistically in that sense? Well, we don't know, of course. I mean, um, they both make it to Germany, both girls. And of course, that in itself, you know, there's this big testimony, really, that the only way to get away, the only way to escape the ghastliness that's going on in their country is, is to leave. And we must never forget what a major decision that is. I mean, to leave everything, leave everything behind. It's something we can't even begin to get close to. And and for them, the integration into a society like Germany must be a colossal shock. And, of course, in the case of Farida, the, the Yazidi girl, she has to go alone. Um, she, she doesn't go with her family. Najin is there in Germany with her family, supported by her family. But it's a very different story for, for the Yazidi girl. She has to, she, in a way, has to escape the, the shame of having been raped, that she can never be accepted in her own society because of this. At least in Germany, she won't have that stigma and she will get treatment. But even so, that the cultural integration of these people, it's going to take a long time. Of course, it's much easier for the younger generation. They, they, If they're still at school age, they will probably manage much, much better than the older generation. Both of these books belong to a kind of publishing phenomenon, really. You refer to the, the Malala effect. And you, I suppose you have to wonder what, what pressures this, this places on the girls and on, on the young women and, and what happens after the, the press sort of dies down. Well, this, this worries me deeply, actually, as, as an issue. The fact that there is a, an element where, where the stories of exceptional girls like this, you know, they, they can get caught up in a kind of media circus and, and then their lives get sort of overtaken and they become this massive focus of attention for a short time. And then, of course, everybody's moved on to the next story. I mean, I, I get told stories from um, people who run charities, Syrian charities for, for refugees, how the media descends on them saying, oh, you know, we want to interview uh, a young girl. She's got to be disabled. She's She's got to have only arrived here a month ago. And if they can't sort of miraculously produce a girl like that, they just rush off to the next place to, to see where they can find somebody who fits their narrative and and this is this is an aspect of our western media that really bothers me actually it's it, it's it's just so it's cruel in its own way this constant search for the next sensationalist story i think well, the girls really must struggle with that but is it not better it's an interesting question that whatever the motives may be is it not better to give voice to these stories than not to have them at all i mean in the end two major publishing houses i suppose have have, have run these stories and, and media will have picked them up even if the motives are not the most benign. Is it not good? I mean, it is, no, I, I, I asked this question genuinely without knowing the answer. Is it good for them that their story has been heard at all? Well, that's, that's I think, what must be the only comfort to them, that, um, that they know that at least they have had a chance to speak out about what is happening back in their own societies and hope that in some way that will make a difference. And that, 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 that does ultimately justify it. I do just worry about you know, the, the girls themselves and, and the way they're treated, you know, the way a lot of these people are treated almost as commodities sometimes. And it does always seem to be girls or young women, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have really equivalent memoirs or, or biographies of, of the young men who, who are coming over. Well, that's another very, very interesting thing. And are we going to see this or aren't we? I mean, are we going to get stories from young male teenagers coming out who, who again question their own societies, who question the dominance of the, the, the patriarchal system, which, you know, both girls to some extent are, are caught up in and, and you know, will, will now escape from and see a different life. So it, it is, um, I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm not so sure, frankly, that we're going to see those sorts of stories because, by and large, you know, a lot of the men are really quite happy with things the way they are. They quite want the women to stay in their place. Uh, and also, I suspect there's a degree of... Susp- I mean, whenever there is a refugee um, a movement into Britain or whenever we take in more refugees, the clarion call goes up, where are the women? Where are the children? There is a suspicion, rightly or wrongly, and very often wrongly, attached to young men who make the journey, often because they're the most... I suspect, capable of making the journey in, in whatever sense that that means. But I don't... Is it true that there would be such a, a sympathetic hearing to a young man who comes from Syria in the way that there would be for a young woman? Well, that's true, yes, that obviously the men are physically more able to make the journey. Also, uh, a lot of the time they've been sent ahead in the hope that they can bring the family, you know, that their extended family uh, at a later point. It's it's a it's a tricky one. Um, it really is. Uh, it is it is a difficult one. New Jean uh, Mustafa. She's from Syria, so perhaps we should talk a bit about the the country that she's that she's left behind. I mean, especially as there are these important talks coming up on Sunday. I think it is. So, what do you think might come out of those talks? I mean, can you can you conceive of a future for, for Syria, and what what might that look like? What might her her home look like? Well, I think I think whatever happens with these talks, I don't see girls like this going back anytime soon. Yeah. It's, it's just not going to happen. Apart from anything else, we have to remember that most of the people who've left would not actually be welcome back in Syria. And the fact that they've left, um, Assad is delighted about it. I mean, he talks quite openly about how how much better um, civil society is, you know, how it's, I mean, it's a, it's a form of cleansing, really, that's been going on. He's, he's delighted to have everybody who opposes him leave. And, and a lot of the young men who've left, of course, are people who, are, who do not want to serve in his army. They're, they are of draftable age, although he's raised the draftable age now to 45 anyway. So it's a, you know, a huge, it's a reflection of how weak the army is and how, how low in manpower he is. So um, these girls and, and many other refugees who've left are, are not going to be able to go back. Um, they're not going to feel comfortable that they're not going to be, um, uh, you know, persecuted or, or, or held up in um, as, as rebels in, in, in some way. They, they'll be frightened that they'll be on blacklists. Um, and so there's going to have to be a massive reconciliation process, a massive amnesty, I mean a real amnesty, not, not the yeah. sort of slightly fake reconciliation things that, that Assad has been talking about, which is you know what anybody else would call starve and surrender. He calls reconciliation. But that can't happen, that reconciliation. I mean, in some ways, to put it, sort of simplistically he is he is one hasn't he Assad Assad there are presumably moments when that was in doubt but he has reasserted his authority the the Russian intervention and his collaboration with Russia has paid off and he is now in a strong position and so presumably that truth and reconciliation moment can't take place under Assad and it's not looking like he's going anywhere soon no, he's not going anywhere soon. And as as you rightly say, it, it it's it's not it's uh it's difficult to see how this reconciliation process can can happen. Throughout throughout the whole of this nearly six year long war, everything about Syria has been difficult to predict. And the thing that um strikes me that I mean I'm a I'm a natural optimist and so I would love to think that there could be a solution and that Syria could be brought back under one big mantle and that everything 
um, you know, could, could could move forward in some way. But it's become so complex with with half the countries of the world virtually, yeah. you know, playing out their 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 battles on on this sort of playground almost of, of Syria. But but there are some little glimpses of things which. Uh, I think we could cling to. I mean, for example, I mean, I know Trump, uh, his 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 coming on the scene is is generally people worry about it. But I mean, I wonder whether, for example, I mean, this is a very optimistic view. But, you know, he the guy is a businessman. The Middle East does deals all the time. Everything functions on deals. If 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 Trump can come in and just see the whole region in terms of deals that can be done, who knows? You know, he could come in. He could, he could build hotels all over Iran. You know, maybe maybe that they're crying out for hotels. They need. You know, they've got a massive shortage of all the tourists for all the tourists who want to go there now. Huge reconstruction um, deals could be done. You know, a kind of massive Marshall Plan. Um, every, if everybody could gain something oh. from all these deals, then there might be a... Or at the very he least, might, he might well say... Money talks, you know. Yeah, and he might well... I mean, an Iranian said to me, a Iranian jailer said to me that she, she wanted Trump to win, not Hillary. Because at the very least, he looks inward, not outwards. And he's going to be concerned about America, making America great again, etc., etc. He's not got any form of mandate that he gives himself to meddle in Middle Eastern politics or even geopolitics really generally and therefore he's less likely to pour petrol on a fire than say even someone well-intentioned like clinton or obama would do yeah no i think i think that's right but let's i suppose cling to the glimmer of optimism you offered there diane it's a possibly a good way to, to sort of leave this that there are remarkable stories like the two that you tell in this review and there is just the possibility that there is no such thing as an infinite war in the end, people grow tired and there are opportunities to fix it. Because Syria was not a nation really cursed by sectarianism. It was a nation where people did get on uh, uh, before this civil war started to a greater or lesser extent. So we can say perhaps you might, you might be an optimistic person, but there may be some glimmerings of optimism there as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, knowing knowing Syrian society, as, as I do quite well, the the um, the cohesiveness of it constantly amazes me. And all all this sort of sectarian divisions that um, the Western media likes to go on about are, are not really that prevalent. You know, they're, they're not. I, I mean, the Assad regime wants to play on them, wants to create them. But people people realize that they're being pushed into traps there and they, they, they're not playing game. Actually, the, the, the Syrians I know say we know we know that we're being forced into um you know sectarian issues here but we we're not interested we 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 don't care you know we we know that our it's a, it's all about trust and if we trust our neighbors if we trust our the people we 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 work with and and um you know relate to on a daily basis then then it doesn't matter whether they're muslim christian sunni shia kurd whatever diana thank you so much for, for doing this piece and, and thank you very much for joining us now not at all it's been a pleasure from one piece sensitive to geography to another, Jenny Hendricks has reviewed two books containing and about maps of New York City. You Are Here by Catherine Harmon and Non-Stop Metropolis by Rebecca Solnit and Joshua Jelly Shapiro. Taken together, they make the claim that a straightforward Google map might tell you literally where you are, but will not tell you anything about where that is emotionally, spiritually, sociologically or subjectively. A street is more than just a linear collection of houses. A borough is more than just a collection of streets. They are places of domestic happiness or grief, of work and play and the remembered backdrops of individual moments in our lives. So maps exist, for example, in these books to show, this is a quote, where the city gets most kinky and where the Manhattans 
rich single men are, the places you're most likely to see celebrities, the location of sitcoms, the best sledding hills, and so on. Maps should provide context, that critical piece of furniture in our understanding that makes us have that understanding, I think. And these books set out to celebrate just that. Jenny Hendricks joins us now from New York. Hi, Jenny. Hi there. They sound like beautiful books, actually, uh, both of them. What are the maps that linger with you when you remember them? What are the either the funky or the interesting or the emotional aspects of the maps that you, you recall when you when you look back on these books? There's one in uh, Rebecca Solnit's Nonstop Metropolis that I think about a lot that it's called Harbors and Harpooners and it's actually a map showing uh, lower Manhattan and the sites of publishing and sites of whaling during the years of Herman Melville. Uh, is there a kind of glorious randomness to these books that you might get a map like that next to something else or is there a, is there a linear narrative is there a conclusion you're expected to draw uh, when you read them yeah so um yeah there is this kind of playfulness and this kind of broad exploration of these different layers um placing things together that really spark uh just a kind of not, not even necessarily a new understanding but a new approach uh to a city or to a place more broadly in addition to that, I think if if you're to take some kind of message away from from this kind of mapping, it would be that you know all maps include all maps involve choices, and all of them you know none of them are objective. All of them have these subjective characteristics. And one of these books in particular, I think it's the Harmon volume that sort of goes back to earlier examples of this. Yes, um, that one includes quite a few. Uh, historical maps, um, so things like insurance maps, um, uh, older pictures of the city, yeah, various maps that came out from the 1800s, 1700s, uh, surveys, things like that. There's one that there's one that pictures New York that I'm thinking of, which has this, it's, it's sort of got a, it's almost like the whole of Manhattan is a, is a cultivated lawn for... Finish. Yeah, uh, that was one of the earliest ones. Um, so it was from the 17th century, and it kind of imagines it's just the very tip of Manhattan because that was the first British colony there, or originally Dutch, but at that time it was British. And it kind of imagines it as these geometrical gardens, uh, very tidy, very beautiful, very cultivated. Um, which, of course, at that time was not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in, in what your creative map or creative atlas of New York would look like, Jenny. Could you, do you have a sense of that when you're thinking? Do you, do you have a sense of, of streets where, where, where something happens? You talk a little bit about moments where you can think, oh, there's a phone calls received when the queue chain rises above ground to cross the Manhattan Bridge, a daily walk. Do you now see New York as part of your own creative atlas? There Are, are there sort of places that, that, that occur to you and crystallise in that way? Yeah, well, I think um, you know, probably everybody has their own their own mental atlas of the city and of any place really um and i think that's part of the part of what's suggested by both of these books um but for myself yeah i mean i like anyone i have my routines uh, <laughs> and each each place you kind of go through becomes marked by by things that happen to you, by thoughts you think, by moods you're in, by kind of the imaginative uh, elements that it summons in you. So I guess both, I mean, both of these books are very much about 
getting you to I suppose question everything when you when you walk along a stretch of tarmac it feels it seems one way to you but you know a, a drug dealer might walk along that same stretch and it's a completely different space to him or you know if you go back 60 years before that's where a particular riot took place so it's about kind of mm-hmm. the strata of of the thing yes absolutely I mean um and when you you think about you're walking along a road and there was once a whole community uh, that was torn down to to allow that road to be built. Under Eastern Parkway, there there was this middle-class free black community called Carville um, during Reconstruction. And, you know, and then there's other things like uh, Broadway was built on what was once the Native American path. That, I, love, I love that detail. I find things like that yeah. so, so fascinating. The idea that Broadway was once a Native American pathway. Yeah, yeah and uh, I mean, you have things like Wall Street, which is so-called because there was a wall there. <laughs> what was the wall? Around the, the original colony. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Brits built a wall and made the Americans pay for it. <laughs> That's right. I believe that's the way these things are. There's a great joke. Fine precedent. Yeah, there's a great joke about, about Trump. America's having a lot of bad luck recently. It must have uh, built something on an Indian, old Indian burial ground. Um, which is, well, uh, in fact. <laughs> thank you so much for... It's, it's a great piece. Um, thank you very much for doing it, and thank you so much for joining us now. Absolutely, thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, I love those books. I so I um, you commissioned this, didn't you? I did, yes. And it really, actually, really pained me to have to send out, especially the Rebecca Sonnet and um, Joshua Jelly Shapiro one. It really pained me to have to send that to Jenny because um, I can just I can spend hours looking at things like that. As I said, I love this idea, uh, this idea of of layering yeah. on on in, on one street. It sort of reminds me of I don't. I, I don't know quite why, but it sort of reminds me of, of Seamus Heaney's bog poetry. Yeah. This idea of, of layers waiting to be excavated and that there is this preserved reality, this connection. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that it's all maps are distortions, aren't they? Mm. Uh, and and so the size of your country tends to sort of swell because that's where the, the map was drawn originally. And you, you see that even in the sort of Mercator projection, it's, mm. not, a, it's not a realistic view mm. of with Europe, at its with Europe at its centre. But I like this idea of a creative atlas that, mm. you know, if you were to draw, draw your map of London, there'd be the place where you might have met someone important or the place where something happened and you lost your wallet or you, you did something. And, and that, that taken together would actually be a rather interesting and very individualistic version of London for us or New York, New York for Jenny. Mm. And some of the ones that, that Jenny's piece uh, lists, some of the maps that it lists, you know, things like squirrel runs or, or you know, the way that waste moves in and water moves into the city and then moves out of the city and how that sort of tips New York off its... Because you think of New York as, yes, the centre of the world or of a world. And this, well, certainly New Yorkers just, do. Exactly, New Yorkers do. Well, that she again, she um, Jenny points to that uh, that famous New Yorker cover. Yeah. Um, View from Sixth Avenue. Is exactly. It? Yeah. Where everything else just sort of drifts off into an insignificant horizon. Yeah. It's a lovely piece. It's, it's a really great idea. And you know, I was a bit dismissive of psychogeography, and I think it can become a bit labour. But the idea of meaning of place being evoked yeah. by either writing or pictures. Is and I do think this is different to psychogeography. Yeah. It's it's more on the it's more like it's more anthropological 
it's more sort of social art if that if yeah. that makes any sense yeah I agree um, I agree and it's just really enjoyable and great to get anyone who lives in a place writing about that place and forcing them to look at it differently yeah and I get you definitely get that sense from Jenny uh, that's almost all we have time for this week let me thank on behalf of Thea and me Jenny Hendricks Diana Dark and Ema McBride please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back every week this year with thoughts on the big pieces in the TLS and important cultural and artistic issues this week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have been discussing plus Alexander Murray on the power of palaces Robert Irwin on the connection between Islam and Arab history Emily Bickerton on the haunted life of Shirley Jackson Robert Douglas first on the award winning La La Land have you seen that yet? I'm desperate to are you going to see it? yeah I think it's out tomorrow it's out on the 13th or the yeah. 12th so, yeah. so you're going to watch it? absolutely yeah I, I am not going to watch it but there we oh go. you're not? I have musicals I can't really be bothered well no I, I, I am not a musical but this one I'm you're going to give a go yeah very interested and did you see um uh, did you see whiplash no well yeah okay well it's the same director but good and I, yes I okay. Whiplash. okay we'll we'll discuss we'll discuss we'll discuss that, that later, later. Uh, alice spall's also on the inspirations of paul nash you can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from tls writers including rebecca swirsky on japan's newest international art festivals and ardaf Ashtaf, Achtaf, I think it's Achtaf Sueth, who wishes she had written Anna Karenina. She I'm sure many people do. She didn't have a go at any Victorian novelist. Does she like, oh, she likes Dickens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just doesn't, doesn't comment. She doesn't mention it. We're going to conclude <laughs> that she does. And you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and review us on iTunes. And do join us next week, where we hope to be talking about how to reboot... Jane it's not Austen. as violent as it sounds. No, oh, I did watch Pride and Prejudice and Zombies in preparation for it. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't very good. No, no. I don't imagine. There's it a shock. <laughs> the managing editor of the TLS also watched it on the same evening and he enjoyed it. Well, no one can say that we don't represent a variety. It's a broad but... church. It's a broad <laughs> church. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.